Hey everybody, I'm Amadal Yakbar, and this is See Something, Say Something. This week we're going to be talking to rapper Brother Ali about how he came off of a five-year hiatus from making music to produce his most recent album, and we're going to respond to some listener mail. If you see something, you better, you better say something. So Brother Ali is a Midwestern rapper who's been on the scene for over a decade and a half. He's just released his first album in five years, All the Beauty in This Whole Life. And by his own admission, it's a much more spiritual album. And he credits that to what he's been doing during the break, studying and developing relationships with this very popular group of American traditionalist scholars who are conversant in traditional Islamic learning, but also can talk academia and liberation theology. And we wanted to catch up with him about that experience. Welcome, Brother Ali. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you released your album in May. Um, uh, Cinco de Mayo. It's a really personal album. There's a lot of stories that you know sort of like chart your life. The first song, Pen to Paper, you tell the story about KRS-One giving you the autobiography of Malcolm X. When I was 13, I met KRS. You put me on a stage, suggested I read up on Malcolm X. I know the rest. Someone's pushing down on my chest. Why do you keep coming back to it? How how did it impact you? I mean, so many reasons. I think that um, one of the things that, that really matters to me a lot, especially the more that I like really start to try to access and dig into the Islamic tradition is this idea of like having people that actually are living links to the tradition that Mm -hmm. actually like on a human being heart to heart level like pass it to you. Right. And um, like the silsila. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you sit with a traditional Islamic like scholar, they're going to start by telling you like who they're, who's in their chain. Mm-hmm. And so they would never just read you a book without telling you, I learned this from so-and-so who learned it from so-and-so who learned it from so-and-so mm-hmm. who learned it from the author. And so you don't only get the text, but you get all the context. And almost as important, if not more so, than the actual text that you learn, but it's the, the manner that you learn from mm-hmm. the human being that right. you get it from, that you take it from. And so I've always known that in hip-hop, like, it matters to me that I have certain mentors and certain links. So, you know, Atmosphere were the first ones to bring me on tour, which is like, you know, they really, them and I would say Tech 9 and Immortal Technique and this kind of like cohort of people that ended up being like Run the Jewels mm-hmm. and Macklemore and others. Like Atmosphere is one of the, one of the founding, right. you know, institutions of that underground independent scene. They're the first ones to take me on tour. And then after that was Brand Nubian and Rakim and Public Enemy and... It's a pretty good silsila, uh, You man. know, Ghostface, and you know what I mean? <laughs> so I really look at it as like, in the Islamic tradition, you have the first generation, mm-hmm. which are the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and then their descendants, that second generation, are the Tabi'een, and those are the people in hip-hop. Like, I'm I'm connected to the hip-hop Tabi'een. Mm-hmm. So if the first generation is Africa, Bambada, and Cool Herc, and people like that, the second generation is Rakim and Chuck D., and KRS. And so, you know, literally like all of the major Sahaba in New York rap anyway, have all given me that, what we would call an Ithin or an Ijaza, to not only study, but also to to practice this culture. And it matters to me. You know, I don't know if I have, you know, I don't know what my direct relation is to the African diaspora, but practicing hip hop, it matters that 
um, you know, that we model that too. Right. In the sense that like we're we're not just listening to CDs in our houses. We're not just like self-taught people <laughs> studying the text right. by ourselves with our own ego and our own limitations and then uh, you know, imposing our view of it on the world. Mm -hmm. That, like, we actually learn this from the people who are qualified to give it to us. You know, you have my mind racing now because I never thought of hip-hop in that way as a silsila. And I think one of the, I mean, one of the things about the um, Islamic tradition that I think is true is, like, you know, uh, there's a wider proliferation of Islamic knowledge because it's easier to access, right, than, like, the traditional knowledge used to be, right? Like, scholars aren't necessarily holed away. You can use the Internet. You can, from the 20s onwards, right, like, you got newspapers and all this stuff. Um, and hip-hop is the same, right? Like, it used to be something that you might only find in your neighborhood in Brooklyn. Or, like, you head up to the Bronx and see Cool Herc DJing or whatever. But now, like, so many more people can claim ownership of it. Right. So it's interesting to me that you, you relate those things. And it's really, like, it, you know, one of the main um, markings of modernity. And, and the, the classical Islamic scholars of today, like, they talk a lot about modernity. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a mm -hmm. main focus for them, as you know. Because of the fact that, like, we have, however long a human history we have, this little sliver of modernity is like, we're the weirdos in this, in this group. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? We think we're the first people to think we're better than our parents, mm -hmm. think we know more than them. Definitely the first people to think we're better than our ancestors. Like, like everybody in human history has this feeling that like my parents know more than I do. My grandparents are are even better than them. My great grandparents are like those are the triple OGs. They don't right, make them right. like that anymore. <laughs> and then our ancestors are like the whole reason we're here is because of them. And in this album, also you talk a lot about beauty and grace. It has a lot of those like meditative and spiritual qualities that are like sometimes missing from a lot of rap, I guess, or like at least the rap that I listen to. And also the, mo <laughs> the, also the modern world. Yeah. Also the modern world, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. was, I was struck by how, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say optimistic because obviously there's like a lot of, um, like there's racism and Islamophobia in there as well. But, it, you know, it was a, it was a, 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 a beautiful look at it, right? And it was, and what what's the importance of beauty to you in, in the modern moment. Yeah, well, beauty is the splendor of truth. And um, this is something that one of my, one of my primary teachers, um, Dr. Umar Farouk Abdullah, you know, he'll take a, a concept or an idea and really spend a year on it. And he'll bring in, like, students that he feels like are serious or that could help work on this thing. All of his students really are research assistants. Dr. Umar Farouk Abdullah is uh, he's a teacher and the founder of the Nawawi Foundation. Yeah. And a lot of the traditional people are this way, that if you know anything, like, if, you know, they have a, their hearts know truth when they hear it. And so if anybody that they sit with, if you start speaking on something that feels like, oh, this person knows what they're talking about, they'll take out a, a notebook and start taking notes, mm -hmm. and then they'll study those notes, and then you'll become their teacher in that area. Um, but so Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah had a, had a year, at least a year, where he was really focusing on beauty as the splendor of truth. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, truth is deeply rooted in the creation, in the cosmos. Ugliness is not. Um, you know, beauty is, and this is kind of a metaphysical idea, but it's, it's really woven through the fabric of everything in creation. And the creator is beautiful and loves beauty. And beauty has a way of communicating truth 
that is objective. It's not just only like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But there are certain things that the human being in a natural state recognizes as beauty. And so they'll, you know, they'll talk to us about the Zen civilization of you know in asia and the first nations traditions and like people beautified things with the idea that these things actually communicate truth and they bypass our intellect they bypass all of our opinions mm-hmm. and all the mm-hmm. stuff we mm-hmm. think we know and like our worldview and our cognitive frames and our epistemology and blah, blah, blah. but it, it goes <laughs> around all of that to deal with the heart of a human being and it soothes the soul and it soothes the heart and it pulls the heart gently like towards the beauty that it's or towards the truth that the beauty is communicating and so i've been rapping 15 years professionally and i came back from hajj in 2010 really wanting to really focus on like what am i doing why am i doing this i don't want to do anything that's not intentional and so i thought okay you know, I'm in this uh, art form that's created by people from the African diaspora. You know, my wife is black and Puerto Rican from the Bronx. You know what I'm saying? Like, so mm-hmm. I'm, you know, You're... again, this this chain, you know, these like living links right. to the tradition. Right. And, but I have a fan base that a lot of them are like people in the dominant culture, white people, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, we're going to we're going to really be intentional about talking about why do we love this music? Right. And what does it what's its role in our lives and what are we here to learn and what are the missing pieces of our humanity we can get from this this culture. And so I started I I started like doing political stuff. Um political organizing. I made an entirely political album in 2012, which seems like five years too late or too early. Like if I would have put that album <laughs> yeah. out now, it might have been a lot better. Yeah. I started realizing like that that political stuff really needs a, a, an inward look too. Mm-hmm. Like it's very right. easy to focus on the evil in the world because it's right. so unabashedly like, you know what I'm saying? It's a, well, it's an interesting problem. Like I feel like when people are talking about Trump, it's just like, Everything shifts so quickly. Mm. There's like, what's your base for what you where you're approaching it? Like, it's obviously your perception. It's easy to see it as ugly, but how do you figure out like what's the intentional mode of uh, adapting to it? Yeah. You know, I would like to hear the rest of the story, of course. But like, yeah. it seems like this helped you come back to this place where you can talk about use hip hop again. Yeah, you know the 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 traditional Muslims have a worldview, and we have an, we have a belief of reality that. Not only did the divine will every single thing into existence uh, with complete knowledge of not only what it is, mm-hmm. but with also infinite knowledge of the infinite possibilities. Right. So the fact that like, so for me personally, I always I bring it back to me because that's all I really know is me. And I don't even know if I know me, mm-hmm. but the, the, the thing that I might know is me. I'm an albino. So like for me growing up as a kid, everybody was mean to me. I'm legally blind. I can't play sports. I trip over stuff. I can't read a book. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I have no color, you know, no pigment. I, I burn if I'm in the sun. All my friends are black and their skin looks like gold. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just like can see through my skin. I got to a place where theology helped me understand that not only did the creator know what I was going to be, but also knew all the infinite possibilities of what mm-hmm. I could have been. Mm-hmm. And from all of those possibilities in divine, w- complete wisdom, chose and delimited that I was not going to be that, I was going to be this. You know, the thing about, like, the traditional Muslims are not exclusive. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll sit with First Nations elders and, like, speak with them and honor them and listen mm-hmm. to them and take from them and benefit from them. You know, can I ask what you mean by traditional Muslims? Well, okay, traditional yeah, yeah. scholars rather. Yeah, well, that... I, well, so basically, we have um, 
yeah, so my understanding is that for, you know, after the first few generations of Muslims, uh, you had scholars who basically um, saw themselves as inheritors of the Prophet and of those early people um, that they learned directly in this chain that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You see the chain as, like, um, as still having the strength of connection. It's still, like... Yeah. That's, that's, that was sort of my... where I, you know, like, I love learning about the, the tradition, but then I'm like, are we still in a connection where it's the same? Yeah, well, that... Yes, and so you, to your question... And I mean, and I would say that all of those major schools have that. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? And, and, and they're all equally valid. So the university system is another way of learning. Right. So, like, Azhar University, as you know, in, in Egypt, they have a methodology that's not... They teach the, all four of the major Sunni schools, but they also have their own Azhari methodology right. of how right. they do things. Right. And the same thing for Karawain in Morocco and the same for, uh, you know, other schools. And But so the traditionalists basically would say that, like, this this... You know, that I, I take my information and I get my Islam from somebody that I physically live with. Right. I, you know, I serve, I make her tea. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of them are women. A lot more of them are women. Um, you know, I carry her luggage and I sit with her and yeah. I, I'm happy to, to serve her. And then she she teaches me and she also is making sure that I'm not only getting the information, but also that my heart is being cultivated right. so that I'm not just becoming a monster with what I know. So you spent a lot of time with, with these traditional teachers over the last few years. How is it that you came out of it making an album? It sounds like it's inspired very much by them. Yeah, yeah, very much. So I, I went to Zaytuna College to do the Arabic program, which is the first accredited well, Islamic college in, the, in America. What was that like? I don't. I've never been there. But, oh, it's, man, it's powerful, man. They're a very like um, like conservative kind of environment. So when you're there, uh, you can't wear jeans and sneakers and t-shirts and hoodies and hats and things like that. Wow. You have to dress <laughs> like a student of knowledge, even when you're off campus. So like even when you go to Whole Foods, like you you can't just go to Whole Foods in your sweats. Like you have to be dressed, in and you have to look nice at all times because of this endeavor that you're embarking on. Yeah, you have to buy a new a whole new wardrobe probably. I did. Some people. No, yeah, yeah, I did. Cause I, you know what I'm saying I'm a touring rapper. Like before I went there, I was on like Macy's.com. It's <laughs> like yeah, give me you know five pairs of slacks and ten button ups and like yeah, man. So you go there and then on you know. Just things like they really encourage you to always be in wudu. Mm-hmm. So like washing, like kind of spiritual cleansing. You know? And so certain things that I picked up just from being there that were really great. And um, I, I let them know I'm hoping to do really well here because I'm thinking about enrolling for four years. And, um, you know, the people were really receptive. They're like, man, you're in. If you want to come, you can come. We would love to have you. And I sat with uh, Usama Cannon, who's like one of my dearest friends and really important person in that community, young, young guy. And he said, well, what did that mean for your career in music? I said, well, I don't, I don't even know if I really want to keep doing that. Mm. I just, it's not feeding me the way that it used to. It's not feeding my soul the way that I want, you know, and I really want access to this tradition. I really want to be with it. So Osama Cannon, if you don't know him, is one of the founders of the Dalif Collective in Chicago and California. And it's one of those third spaces we've mentioned in earlier episodes of the podcast. And he said, um, if you basically retire from music to go and try to study, 
and this is a really person that uh, from our generation has a lot of prominence with these teachers, like they all really love him and they actually admire him. He said, I'm going to go to all of them and make sure that nobody will teach you. <laughs> you won't you won't you won't be in Zaytuna College if you can forget it. He was like any t- classical scholar that you try to sit with, they won't even return your tweets. You won't be able to cl- take a class on Seekers Hub online. Like you will not have access like I'll shut you down. I will hate on you. But he said if you keep making music, then I'll actually get those levels of teachers and I'll 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 talk to them and they'll teach you one on one. And they'll get you can work with them on your time, on your schedule, and they'll give you what you need. He's like, You don't need a diploma. You're not gonna go to grad school and go to divinity school somewhere. You want to learn how to be a Muslim and how to help people. And so he's like, We'll com- be completely at your service and that's been the truth. But that's like the opposite of most aspiring rappers who would go to an Islamic school, right? Usually they tell you to go into, uh, you know, do the, just drop the rap. Yeah. So that's really fascinating. No, and Dr. Omar actually, um, Farouk Abdullah that I mentioned, he said, I know that you you feel, sometimes I, I feel a little constricted around the music that I've made in the past is like really harsh, like in terms of language. He said, you know what you need to open the hearts of the people you're talking to. Don't worry about what Muslims think about you. Hmm. Like the people you're talking to are the people that drink Budweiser and hang out and smoke weed out of an apple in their garage. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's who you're talking to. So you talk the language that you need to speak to them. You know, I'm a person, a modern person who like came up with the systems of oppression and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the left really like speaks to me. The radical left right. like really feels right to me. Welcome to the United States. Land of the thief, home of the slave. Grand Imperial Guard where the dollar is sacred and proud. Let's do the shift real. Come on. And a lot of my teachers started out that way too. And then they got access to these pre-modern traditions that actually help ground and root a lot of what they do. And and they helped me really see that so many of the these ideas and concepts and like you know, in the pre-modern world you have virtues that are timeless universals. In the modern world we have ideals. Mm-hmm. And the the problem with ideals is that like they sound really good to us because they have a lot of positive connotation, but they don't have any like delimitation. So we talk about these like flowery ideas like freedom and equality and like so-and-so. It's like, yes, but what does this mean and what does it not mean? And what's going to ground me and like root me so that I don't just fly all o- float all over the place with whatever feels right to me mm-hmm. in this modern time. So can you explain to me what what you mean by like f- freedom? You see freedom as an ideal as opposed to an objective uh, like truth to to follow. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I so understand. the idea of freedom. Yeah. So, for example, um, uh, freedom as an ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean? And what does it not mean? Mm-hmm. Like if it's just me with everything that I've ever wanted and needed at my disposal and with no barrier in between me and the things that my ego is right. demanding me to do, uh, then I'm going to destroy myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, early on, I was talking to Dr. Omar and I was telling him about I was I was very impressed with myself and all this like organizing <laughs> I've done yeah, yeah. in the Twin Cities where, um, you know, banks were ripping poor people, especially people of color out off and, and evicting them from their housing. You know, we got like the young white activists from um, 
Occupy, to do Occupy Home. So we would like take them from like just what I saw is like you're just chilling downtown, like like impressed with yourself and your activism. Let's go and have you occupy a house in the black community where the bank is taking it from a person and like will you chain yourself to that house and get arrested and bring a lot of attention to this thing and put pressure on the bank and we did it's one of the dopest things I've ever been a part of and so I'm telling Dr. Omar about all this stuff and I'm like I go to jail for this man and da 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 (laughs) and and I was like that's why you know radical this radical thing like really speaks to me meanwhile I've never I'm not asking him his story you know what I'm saying? I need some kind of connection to a system that checks my ego, that that tells me that there are certain areas that you just don't go. There's certain things you don't look at. There's certain things you don't eat. There's certain things that you deny yourself based on the idea of there being a divine reality that's watching. So can I let me let me ask some questions about this? Please, because I, I'm, I'm still working this out, man. Sure. Um, so it's sort of a two part question. One is personal, and one is like a broader one about this point you just made about mm. um, having a tradition to ground yourself in and to adapt to modern circumstances or even any circumstances really because, you know, you know, the tradition is such that it's supposed to be adaptable to yeah. any circumstance. If it's not, it's dead. Right. For it to be a real tradition, it's got to it's got to arrive in the present moment and right. serve the present moment. Right. Yeah. So the first question is, do you feel like so? Has this? How has this affected your political organizing? Are you stepping back from it, or are you approaching it now with the like? Do you feel cultivated enough that you can come back into it? And then the second question is, like, I'm also somebody who feels like, so I'm more of a skeptic, but I I, I definitely find a lot of value in the tradition. Mm-hmm. I might not be like the, like I might not you know, hew closely to like a Hanafi school, which is what I was raised in. But mm. I find some value in, Han- in some things I learned from Hanafiness. I also find some values in the modernists. And I also find some values in things that are, you know, outside of Islam, as everyone does. So the question is like, yes, it's true that the tradition does valuable things. Like for me and for you and for a lot of this school of teachers that you're talking about who like, you know, I'm pretty aware of and have spent some time with. The question is like, the rest of the world doesn't bend that way, right? Muslims are a, a part of it. Muslims who have adapted, have, who have this sort of like traditionalist uh, viewpoint that has um, really suited itself nicely to, I think, the modern language. Like what you're saying is very compelling to me and it always has been. But I have this other thing of like the rest of the community is not going to always be like that. And you're still a minority, I guess, within the community in yeah. some ways. Yeah, for sure. So how do you deal with that and what like the world is... is I guess like part of Islam for me is also like uh, battling injustice and inequality and a lot of these other things and using an ethical framework to adapt to it. But the rest of the world doesn't want to bend. I'm not sure what the end goal is for like Islam, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a lot. I know. No, no, no. No, I feel you. So, you know, I would say first of all, in terms of like, like the way that I am Mm -hmm. with uh, you know like the way to be with other people is like this tradition first and foremost if it's authentic it's here to to get my heart right right it's here to get my life right it's it's here to correct me it's not here for me to correct other people with you know what i'm saying uh for me i will i will know that i'm really doing this thing right if it's easy for me to love if it's easy for me to forgive mm-hmm. if it's easy for me if if i'm not interested in people's other people's mistakes right. like when that stops being entertaining to me and what i think they where where i think they're they're um you know they're um 
lack of, you know, where I disagree with them. My disagreements with people just don't entertain me as much. And it becomes easy for me to serve them. It becomes easy for me to just, like, try my best. Like, how do I show up right now for this person? Can I love this person in a way where they're safe enough to heal when they're around me? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because Mm. that's really what this tradition is about. And um, so in my organizing, I've kind of shifted my focus a little bit because, I mean, in that organizing world, you know, I'm a person who never loved the mosque system. I've always felt like these are places where people come and get their hearts broken by these people. (laughs) And um, It's a very common complaint, I think. Yeah, man. I had the good fortune of being raised in a community of Imam Wadathadim Muhammad. And, I mean, those mosques in are in Minneapolis mm-hmm. and, and, you know, traveling a lot. But when I got into community organizing and political organizing and, like, the social justice community, it's one of the most divisive communities. Mm. And I say that as a part of it, as a member of it, lovingly. It's one of the <laughs> most—I uh, mean, seriously, it's no, no, one no, of the yeah. most um, judgmental spaces you can be in. But they feel themselves, like, really superior to religious people. And then you go to religious yeah. people and you see the same thing. But yeah. they believe that they're superior because of the fact that I have a belief. I stand up and I do these five prayers every day. I fast for this month. Mm-hmm. I wear this outfit. So I'm clearly better. You know what I mean? None of that is the work to me. So the thing that the tradition really binds me to uh, are people who suspect themselves. They're like really suspicious of their own opinions. They're really suspicious of their own rightness. You know, I was sitting with Dr. Omar one time and like I had like I was on a tour and I had one day off. And so instead of flying home. Uh, you know, like the just hypocrite that I am. Like, I should have flown home and been with my family. Yeah. I flew to Chicago because my teacher's there. Mm. And I'm like, man, can I just sit in a room with you for an hour? Please. And he was like, I would be honored. And like, you know, that's how yeah, those people yeah. are. So I go and he's been traveling for two years straight, um, serving people, helping people. And and this is his only day. This is He's home for like four days. So I'm just being a jerk and posing on him. You know what I'm saying? So I go and we're sitting in this <laughs> library and, like, it's thousands of books in this library. And um, I said, man, it's so wonderful to be in your, in your library with you. And he says, Allah should take this library away from me. I sin here. Oh, my God. This is a place where I sin. And there was another brother there. Our brother Mansoor was with us. And I was like, Sidi, uh, Mansoor doesn't know what you mean by that. Because <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Because if I say I sit in my office, I know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I, he doesn't mean the same thing, right? Like, come on. Like, this is not a confession, is it? And he said, uh, I come in here and I read these books over and over again. And I never help you. And you're out here every night. And you're performing for people. And they're crying and they're coming to you. And I should be helping you. This is who I'm trying to be, roll with. Mm-hmm. This is who I'm trying to learn from. A person who suspects himself and is like, if I were real, I'd be helping the people that need it the most. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's so real for me, by the way. Yeah. And like, <laughs> so, 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 you know, academics that are like, your language is problematic right now. And da da da. It's like, yes, true. But where, how are you loving me? Do you mm-hmm. love me? Mm-hmm. Am I really part of your community? Is your scholarship here to serve us and help us heal? Is my critique right. of of this the, these systems and things like that? Is it really focused on healing? And that's ultimately what the what these traditions do. And this is a critique that like political minded people will have of religious people. Cause I'm like, man, 
let's let's just create environments where we sit together and be together in our vulnerability, mm-hmm. in our weakness. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my focus has shifted to that. And I remember being in those, like, I'm in those activist circles where they're like, y'all just sit up in the mosque all day praying and doing dhikr and, like, you're not doing anything. You know what I'm saying? And I really feel like the balance is is extremely important. I have uh, a question. You you brought up academics. You know, I was in academia. Mm-hmm. I actually got a master's in religious studies. Um, and I also, during my time, spent some time with some, like, traditional teachers, you know, did a summer program. I did all of them. Okay. So, yeah. Dope. Yeah. Which was... I love... Man. Anyhow, my point about academics is, is that one of the reasons I left academia and didn't want to continue on was... One is like I felt like I wasn't connecting people. I was writing about Muslims in America. But the other was the language was very difficult for people. You know, there's it wasn't accessible in some ways or it wasn't like every word means something that's very deep, obviously, but like it also could be explained. And one thing that I think is fascinating about this album is that as a Muslim listening in, I hear you translating, right? You're using words that somebody who like, like I wrote a few of them down as I was listening, like, Uncreated majesty, essence is merciful, unbroken chains transmitted to the speakers. These are all like uh, actually translations in some ways of of Islamic traditional concepts. Um, is that something that you intentionally do or is it like a practice you do in your life? For instance, I say God more now than I say Allah because it's, it's useful for me and it's understandable for me. Is mm-hmm. it something that you you practice in the rest of your life or is it something just for your music? Um, I try to the Arabic. Yeah, no, I try to practice it in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm really one of the things that like my dear friend Usam McCannon like really exemplifies to me is that he really believes, and this is part of the tradition. So, like, tr- you know, traditionally there were like saints, mm-hmm. and then there were academic scholars, but then they always had translators and they always had cultural people and they kicked it together Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. they really like venerate us there's a gathering of great scholars and you're one of the great cultural workers right and so you can tell that from your stories that you've told about them they value you a lot well they value the 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 role of culture sure you know what i mean and so anybody that they can get around so it's like yeah we all have an equal human dignity we all deserve a certain level of just honor just based on the fact that we're willed into existence by a creator but uh abdul hakim murad timothy winter says all human beings are mutually superior. <laughs> like we all have a specific gift yeah, yeah. that's ours and we're not the you know what I mean? We're not the sure. same. Well, Brother Ali, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, your new album is out and available, uh, you know, everywhere music is 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 sold. Where are, How long are you on tour for? Ever. <laughs> so you can catch him around the United States and are you in, maybe even internationally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we head to Europe um, after the after this part of the tour is over. We head to Europe, and we're uh, always traveling in the Middle East and Africa, things like that too. So. Very cool. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Okay, so we get a lot of emails from our listeners, so we wanted to respond to a few of them. Here's one. This listener is a Mormon person who likes our show because they let her see the similarities between religions. But she said this, On the podcast, you use a lot of terms I don't know, some from Islam and some cultural. And because they aren't English words, it can be tricky to know the spelling so I can look them up. Haram was easy, but for some reason it took me a while to figure out the spelling of Tiffin. 
It would be helpful if you could list the vocabulary words non-Muslims might not be familiar with in an episode description so I can Google them easily. I think that's a fair point. And I also want to point out that you're doing everything right. When we got our first set of emails on our episodes, people would ask us to define haram, define these terms. And we sort of resisted this idea that we should have to explain the natural conversational stuff that happens between Muslims and that it's understandable for context. It's understandable if you can Google it. But that doesn't mean that everything is always understandable to everyone. And Tiffin, for example, is like, that's a good check. Tiffin is an Indian lunchbox that people outside of South Asia might have no idea what it what it is or what it's spelled like. And it's not the most natural thing to Google. But sometimes we don't do as good of a job of explaining things that are cultural. Like Tiffin is definitely a South Asian cultural thing and not an Islamic thing at all. And it's it's like a vocabulary word from Indian English. Like if you're Indian, you know it. But it's fair that a lot of other people probably would not know how that's spelled. I was definitely extremely confused the first time I heard the word Tiffin. So I don't think we're going to be able to add like a vocab list, but we'll definitely keep a more careful eye out for things that are cultural and not religious and maybe hard to spell. So this person wrote in to uh, talk about how much she related and valued the Ghee episode. She said, food cultural appropriation is something I think about a lot. Maybe you mentioned this and I totally missed it. But when it comes to something like that, I always want to know who's making money off of it. For example, with quinoa, acai, etc. There are a few Chinese pan-Asian restaurants now that cater to young audiences that are owned by white guys with no, as far as I can tell, connection to those cultures. But they present a facade of hip Asianness and make money off of it. So yeah, that's definitely something we thought about a lot. We actually did not reach out to the companies who are owned by white folks making uh, this like artisanal ghee in that episode. And I think it's an interesting question to talk to those people and really confront why this is happening. Um, appropriation happens in a lot of different spheres. And I think the reason why we like to talk about food appropriation is because of that monetary thing that happens where somebody is literally commodifying your culture and trying to sell it in a new way. And I sort of just want to know why. Why do you do that? That's not very nice. You didn't get permission from me. So maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. We did a really narrow thing about ghee. We wanted to just tell the story about ghee, but there's so many other stories about appropriation that aren't related to food even uh, that are worth talking about. Uh all right, so this question comes from Twitter. How was the podcast named? I don't remember if it was mentioned in an episode and what are some of the other names y'all had for it. We were just sitting there brainstorming and I was just listening to the Caminos because I'm a fan and I was heard the, if you see something, and I was like, we should just be called see something, say something, shouldn't it? I literally like took off my headphones and was like, we should just name it after this song, right? Like we can just ask them if they'll let us make it our theme song. And if they do, that's the perfect name for the show. And uh, thankfully, they agreed, and it just fit. Um, before that, it was, like, really hard for me to think of stuff because I feel like it was hard to come up with something that wasn't cultural, just, like, some specific group. The, the runner-up was Halal Cart, you know, like the ones that you see in New York City. And it did have that feeling of, like, socializing in a, in a global diasporic environment, which I think was kind of cool. Um, and somebody should name their podcast that, but not us. So we consistently get a category of questions that I'd like to call, can you be my sheikh? Which basically means people ask me things like, can you tell me how I can know if this bread I'm buying at a supermarket is halal? Is it halal for men and women to shake hands or hug or whatever? And I just like to say that I can't 
be your sheikh. My profession is to be a podcast host, and I can't really answer answers on Islamic law. I have done a lot of studying, and I can tell you what I think is my personal opinion, but most people would say that's probably not a valid opinion at all, and you shouldn't listen to me. And I think they're really cute that you guys ask me that stuff, but literally I I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there have been two questions that we've got, one from email and one from our New York Times live event. Um, One person asked that they really like the way we've represented different groups and that they've learned a lot about the black American experience, but they were suggesting that we could add some Central Asian Muslims into the mix and talk about, you know, some of the people doing work there and also some North African Muslims. We have had some North African Muslims, but I think we definitely could have more and we certainly need to feature some Central Asian Muslims, Uzbek or Afghan or whatever. So if you have suggestions for guests for us, please let us know. We are always open, um, especially if they're doing like interesting cultural work that is fun to talk about. Here's the other thing. She said, anyway, huge fan of the show and love that you have many female guests (laughs) with the three clapping emoji. So nice to hear similar thoughts and similar voices. Uh, Yeah, we don't talk about this very often, but I think we found out that the ratio of women guests to male guests on the show is like four to one. Or something ridiculous like that, as it should be. Okay, that's it for the listener mail grab bag. If you got more questions, send them my way at say something at buzzfeed.com. They don't have to be questions. They can be pictures of like your adorable family or like some vines you like, RIP Vine, or just anything besides asking me to be a religious scholar because I really am not a religious scholar, guys. Please don't ask me those questions anymore. Okay, love you guys. Bye. This episode is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, Megan Dietrich, and Alex Laughlin with additional production support from the Pod Squad and the See Something, Say Something Brain Trust. Woo! Uh, <laughs> you can find our music by the Caminas at bandcamp.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Facebook or in our newsletter. And you can also follow me at Rad Brown Dads on Twitter and on Tumblr. If you have any questions or concerns, email us at something at buzzfeed.com. Please rate us on iTunes. I'm Amadella Yakber. Thanks for listening. <laughs>